Um, so this term we've been doing a series of uh, sermons looking at God's amazing promise to Abraham and his sons, as told in us, uh, to us in the book of Genesis, um, that through him and his descendants, the whole world would be blessed. Well, last week, though, at the 6.30 service, instead of looking at Abraham, we took a slight break and we had a special talk on stress. And therefore, um, I need to start with a quick preview of what part of the story we missed last week. Um, and um, so, that's so that we can understand today, today's passage better. Um, so first of all, I don't know about you, but I like to see things pictorially. So I, I put together this little family tree um, that hopefully might help. You know, those who know me are probably already laughing at me, needing to see things in pictures. Um, so, um, and uh, this will take us uh, from Abraham through to the point where we're at the moment in, generation, in Genesis 28. So God promised Abraham a son with his wife, Sarah. Uh, but this took a long time. So Abraham and Sarah took things into their own hands. And so they decided that Abraham would sleep with Hagar, uh, Sarah's maid. And they had Ishmael. Um, but God stayed good to his promise. And at over 100 years old, Abraham had Isaac by his wife, Sarah. Um, Isaac grew up and then married Rebekah. And they tried, too, to have children, but they had their own problems getting pregnant. So for 20 years, Isaac and Rebekah prayed for children. At last, Rebekah became pregnant and with twins. Um, but these babies were destined not to get on well. Even in the womb, we're told in Genesis 25 that the two babies struggled within her. So Rebekah prayed to God, asking him why these babies struggled inside her. And he answered her by saying, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples are within you, two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the elder will serve the younger. So that key part, the elder will serve the younger. Here God was foretelling that the second born would be served by the firstborn, not the usual way round. In due course, Rebecca had her twin baby boys. Esau was born first, and then Jacob. Esau, being born first, uh, was due the inheritance from Isaac. So when Isaac, grew, uh, Isaac became very old and blind, he called his firstborn, the one he liked most actually, Esau, to receive his blessing, and for Isaac to bestow everything he had to Esau. Well, Rebecca and Jacob uh, came up with a plan to trick Isaac um, to bless Jacob instead of Esau. Jacob pretended to be Esau, and by this received Isaac's solemn blessing. Of course, Esau and Isaac found out. Esau was pretty angry with Jacob, to say the least. In uh, Genesis 27:41, we are told, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. So Rebecca had to come up with another plan to protect her favorite son, Jacob. She tells Jacob to run away to his uncle who lived in Laban, a distant town, to be out of the way for a while to protect him. She tells Isaac that he's gone to find a wife. 
Isaac, although pretty angry too, has given the deceiver, Jacob, his blessing. That could not be undone, and therefore he lets Jacob go off to Laban. Altogether, a pretty dysfunctional family. I think you, uh, you have to agree. As Philip said last week, uh, they would have made excellent guests on any Jeremy Kyle show. So it is with this background that we get to today's passage. Um, so can I ask Philip to come up and do our reading of our passage? Thank you, Philip. It would help if you kept your Bibles open, as always, the usual clause, and uh, that's on page 30. And also there's a summary of my talk inside the notice sheet um, that shows you the structure of what I'll talk about. So right at the start of this passage, we find Jacob walking through the desert, having been sent away from his family. Maybe after a few days' walk, um, we uh, um, estimate that he's about 50 miles away from his house at this point. Nightfall comes. In the middle of nowhere, the darkness falls, and he lies down, and he uses a rock as a pillow. Now, this is a strange thing, you've got to admit. Um, if you're caught at night in the countryside, what would you use as a pillow? Uh, I'm sure if you had it, you might roll up a jumper or a scarf or anything that's made out of material. Fabric does make a better pillow, I think, than a rock. Um, in fact, it's hard to think of anything that's worse as a material than a rock. Um, so what are we to make of this? Well, Jacob either had nothing else with him or he felt so down that he really didn't care. In fact, in verse 11, where it says, nightfall fell, I think it's fair to say this could have applied to the level of happiness of Jacob as well. But amazingly, off he goes to sleep, and he dreams. Let's look closer at the dream, starting in verse 13. First, this ladder. What are we to make of that? Well, some older tr uh, translations call this ladder uh, call this stairway, sorry, call this a ladder rather than a stairway. In our Bible it says stairway, but older traditions, translations say ladder. Um, well, actually, the stairway is a much better translation. Think of this more like a large, sweeping, grand staircase. And then we're told that Jacob saw many angels going up and down in both directions, passing each other. So that's why it needs to be a staircase, because think of hundreds of angels going up and down this, backwards and forwards. A little ladder just wouldn't be big enough for everybody to go up and down. Um, so this is a busy stairway, passing backward and forward between heaven and earth. Why? Well, why are they going up and down? Well, traditionally, angels uh, throughout the Bible have been portrayed as messengers of God. Also, when you think of angels... Please don't think of them as little Cupid-like angels, often on Christmas cards or on Valentine's Day cards about this big, uh, playing a harp. Think about the occasions you know in the Bible when angels are talked about and when they greet and meet people. Almost always, the first thing that angels say to people and feel compelled to say it is, don't be afraid. I don't think they've ever said, Please don't think I'm cute. I've got something really important to say. I don't think they show up like this playing a harp. Um, don't be afraid. Angels are big. 
strong and they mean business and the business is serving God. The next things to note is in verse 13. Our church Bibles uh, translate uh, verse 13 as there above it, stairway, stood the Lord. Although, note in the footnotes, there's another translation which it says it might be instead, which says there beside him, Jacob, stood the Lord. Actually, other more recent translations and now many scholars think that that's a better translation, that there beside Jacob stood the Lord. And I like this. We have the stairway with loads of angels coming up and down and God himself comes down to be with Jacob. He's beside him. What an amazing thing to happen, to have the God of the universe beside you. And God opens Jacob's eyes to the mechanism of how heaven and earth really interact. It's a bit like, and this comes to us all in the end as as preachers, it's a bit like that film The Matrix. I'm going to cite The Matrix as an analogy. The hero, uh, Neo, perceives the world in one way. He goes to work, he carries out life as he sees it. However, unknown to him, an immense computer system is a real reality. Slowly in the film, this is revealed to Neo. There's a different reality that he becomes clearly aware of. So here, God is revealing to Jacob a reality that he's never been aware of before. Heaven is not passive, but cares deeply and actively about the earth and each of us here. Heaven is really busy on earth. Maybe Jacob, maybe we too have never thought of this. Some people's perception of God is that God may well have created the world, but then he sort of just left us to it and let the world carry on without him. This revelation to Jacob completely contradicts that view. We may not see them, but this passage tells us that God and his holy servants are all over this planet doing his bidding. There's another passage in 2 Kings 6, chapter 6, that I just want to mention here that's very similar. Here, Elisha, a prophet of God, and his servant seem to be all alone and all about and are about to be attacked by an army. And no doubt his servant was petrified. Elisha knows different and prays to God for the servant. Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. They are far from alone. Surrounding Elisha and his servant is the army of God himself. So, like Elisha's Elisha's servant, Jacob, for the first time, has seen in his dream how heaven isn't passive, isn't uncaring. Up to this point, we don't know much about Jacob's belief in God. But there's a telltale verse back in Genesis 27, verse 20. When he's lying to Isaac, when he's trying to persuade Isaac that he's Esau, Isaac asks Jacob how he's managed to go and hunt so quickly and bring back his favorite meal. And Jacob uses the word, the phrase, your God granted me success. Your God granted me success. Not my God or our God, but your God. Almost implying your God, but not mine. Jacob hasn't had a real experience of God 
Yes, he most likely believed that God existed, but he may, um, he may, he may feel that God is very remote to him. He had heard of this God and his promise to his grandfather Abraham and father Isaac, but he isn't his God yet. God is still their God. Maybe that's us. Maybe we have grown up in a believing family, but God has never been our God. Always been the God of our parents or brother or sister or partner. Never felt God truly ours personally. Maybe this is what you long for, for God to be beside you personally, to experience him. Then just ask him. Ask him to reveal himself to you. I know, uh, looking on you, that many folk here would testify to have experienced God personally. That God is a someone, not a something. A person, not an idea. And it's wonderful to live life with him beside us. Well, even though Jacob didn't ask him to, here God shattered his idea of who God is and how he operates. Now God makes himself personally known to Jacob. He stands beside him. And that old promise that Jacob remembered that he'd first heard said to his granddad Abraham and then passed to his father Isaac is now passed to him personally by God. But not only that, then God too promises in verse 15, I am with you and will watch over you whatever you do, wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land and I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Jacob wakes up and realizes that he has really experienced God. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He goes on to say, this is the gate of heaven. Now let's look a little deeper at this phrase, the gate of heaven. Why did Jacob, what did Jacob mean by this? Well, what it would have reminded him about was the legend he'd heard of the Tower of Babel, which we've got a record of back in Genesis 11. Here is a picture by Escher of the Tower of Babel, uh, back from Genesis 11. Well, back there, what they wanted to do was build a tower that could reach up to heaven. And in fact, the word Babel actually means gate to heaven or gate to God. Now, in fact, this idea of making a building high enough to reach the divine has been replicated by many across many cultures and religions throughout the world. People trying to reach up to God in various different worship buildings and temples. So many temples have been built to allow man to get high, to get as high and close to, possible, to God as possible. Often they look like this building, having a staircase to get up closer to God, to the God's to be able maybe to perform an act of submission, such as a sacrifice to an animal, um, or worse, to their gods. To do something that pleases the gods and gets a blessing from them. This would have been common from the people around where Jacob's family was in the Middle East as well. But look closer at the difference uh, with the God of Jacob than with the, the other people around. In our passage, God is at the bottom, not at the top. Jacob doesn't go up to see God. God is there beside him. God comes down to him. This isn't a stairway to go up to please the gods at the top. 
rather a stairway for God to come down and by grace bless Jacob. How could God have done this when Jacob had done nothing to deserve it? Jacob's on the run and doesn't ask God to show up, yet God does with all his angels lavishing this really dysfunctional Jacob with blessing and promises within his presence. Well, the answer to how God could do this came many years later, and it happened in John 1, 48 to 51, especially verse 51. And if you'd like to move to that, that passage, that's John chapter 1, starting at verse 48. In this passage that I'm going to refer to now, um, there's a man called Nathaniel. Nathaniel had a friend called Philip who had met Jesus and went to find his friend and tell him that he found the Messiah, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathaniel scoffed, Nazareth? Can anything come out of Nazareth? And Philip simply says, come and see. So as they're walking towards Jesus, Jesus sees them coming towards them and says about Nathanael, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. As he gets there, Nathanael asks, how do you know about me? Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael is stunned and his attitude totally changes. And he says, Rabbi, Teacher, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. We have no idea what Nathaniel was doing under the fig tree or who he was with or anything about it. But whatever was going on was so important to Nathaniel that the fact that Jesus mentioned it totally knocked him over, wiped away any doubt he had. He moved from scoffing to declaring to Jesus, You are the Son of God. Jesus says, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You shall see greater things than that. And then he said to all the people who were there, I tell you the truth, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What is Jesus saying here? Well, just compare these words to the words in our first passage. This is so exciting. Just look at how similar the words are. In Genesis, we have the angels were ascending and descending on the stairwell, on it. And in John, we have the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus knew his Old Testament, and he's quoting right from that same night back in the desert with Jacob. And now Jesus is saying, actually, he is the stairway. Jesus says, you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is the stairway. He says, I am the way between heaven and earth. And this is the reason why the gateway that Jacob saw works in a different way to other religions. Jesus does not say that you will see angels ascending and descending up to the Son of Man, and somehow you're expected to climb up to, to God as well us somehow satisfying certain criteria or obeying rules, earning our way, multiple steps up to God, 
uh, and leaving us to get on with it. He doesn't do that. Christianity is not a series of what to do. It's all about who to trust, Jesus. He has already fulfilled the requirements for us. He has walked all the steps. He lived a perfect life. He took the penalty of us failing to walk up to be perfect for God. And if we understand that, we will see heaven open up. He and he alone is the route to heaven, to God. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He himself is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus didn't say, these are rules I'll show you, and then you'll make your way up to heaven step by step. He simply said, I am the way. There is just one step we need to do, and that is to recognize what he has done, and that is everything for us and follow him. So when we recognize this in Jesus and recognize that on our own, trying to get up step by step, we have no hope. In fact, um, if it was down to me to perfectly step up those steps, never failing, then I wouldn't have a chance. I fail again and again. The choice is ours to struggle on in this impossible task of trying to be good enough to get all the steps right or just to trust Jesus and take the only step that is truly necessary, and that's to follow him. For with him, each step has already been done. Through him, and only through him, we can accept Jesus. God sees us as already being at the top, inheriting the steps that Jesus took. And this is the point and the beauty of God. Grace is not about what we do for God, how we step up to him, Through Jesus, God is beside us, showing himself to us as he did Jacob, helping us to see him and then blessing us eternally by the gift that is Jesus, the way to him.